I'm, is that better? Um, this morning I will continue looking at this uh, short passage that I've translated. Um, let's start by just reading through it again. Uh, this is the Buddha's account of his awakening, as we find in the Arya Pariyasana Sutta. The Buddha's speaking, he says, I considered this Dhamma I have reached is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and consequent, not confined by thought, subtle, sensed by the wise. But people love their place, alaya. They delight and revel in their place. It is hard for people who love, delight and revel in their place to see this ground. This conditions that, conditioned arising. And also hard to see this ground, the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of bases, the fading away of craving, desirelessness, stopping, nibbana. Were I to teach the Dhamma and others were not to understand me, that would be tiring and vexing for me. One of the difficult things when um, reading a text like this is to notice what is not mentioned. Now, although in the Bodhi Nyanamoli translation, we have, um, the transla- we, ha- 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 we have the terms that this is hard to understand, and then, he tra- then they translate um, ground as truth, then we could assume that this experience of awakening is coming to some privileged knowledge of the truth, of knowing what is true. But in the actual Pali, neither of these words are present at all. There is not a single word in this passage in which the Buddha describes his experience uh, in terms of knowing something. The root word for... To know is nya or jnya in Sanskrit. And yet the Buddha doesn't claim to know anything specific or particular at all. In keeping with the uh, guiding metaphor of the sutta itself, the noble search or quest, he speaks not of arriving at some privileged knowledge of what we might term reality, but rather he defines his experience in a radical shift from being absorbed and obsessed about one's place, one's identity, be it one's national identity, one's social identity, one's religious identity, one's psychological identity, moving from that to what he calls this ground. There's a passage um, in a much later text, in a much later tradition, that of the Rinzai Zen tradition, 
or the Lin Chi Chan tradition, where Lin Chi says, and he's a 9th century Chinese Chan master, <coughs> the language is slightly different, but I think the same point is being made. If you want to be free to be born or die, to go or stay, as one would put on or take off a garment, then you must understand right now that the person here listening to the Dhamma has no form, no characteristics, no root, no beginning, no place he abides. Yet he is vibrantly alive. All the 10,000 kinds of conditioned happenings operate in a place that is in fact no place. Therefore, the more you search, the farther away you get, the harder you hunt, the wider astray you go. This is what I call the secret of the matter. So, awakening here is not described in coming to know something, but rather in gaining an entirely different perspective on what is actually going on. The ground, this tana that the Buddha speaks of, turns out, paradoxically, to be a groundless ground. It's a bit like Lynch's um, famous statement about a true person of no status. Again, this is a shift from preoccupation with rank or status or position and a shift to a much truer relationship with what is actually happening moment to moment, a kind of new way of responding to the world. When talking of this ground as um, conditioned arising, something that is um, moment to moment uh, slipping away and transforming into something else, without any interruption, without any solidity, without any kind of essential reality underpinning it. We come close, I think, to um, the metaphor of water. Now, I'd like just to explore the way in which the Buddha uses the metaphor of water. This ground is like water in the sense that you cannot grasp it, you cannot pick it up, you cannot pin it down. It's constantly moving and slipping away. But that does not mean that it cannot support you, that you cannot relate to it in such a way that it does provide you with the ground, but the way in which we will live in such a way is different from that of our firmly clinging on to the existential equivalent of terra firma, solid ground. The Buddha compares his Dhamma in a later passage uh, to that of a raft. A raft is something temporarily cobbled together for the purpose of crossing over water. He doesn't, therefore, um, envisage some magnificent ship 
but simply something that is adequate to the task of steering our way across a river, across a flood, across a stream. So the water supports this, and our skill in navigating that raft is what enables us to um, direct the course of our lives on a basis that is entirely insubstantial, like water, ungraspable and unpin-downable. So this groundless ground is not the absence of support, but it supports us in a different way. Whereas a place ties you down and closes you off, this ground lets you go and opens you up. It doesn't stand still for a moment. Another image might be that of a long-legged fly or a water boatman insect that likewise is able to negotiate the surface of the water more as a kind of a dance rather than the need to have some solid base on which we need to stand. Another time the Buddha uses the metaphor of water is when he talks of entering the stream. And this is, of course, uh, the key moment in which one opens up and finds oneself on a path which the Buddha compares to a stream. The, the stream which one enters um, is described by the Buddha as the Eightfold Path. So one enters a path, and the path likewise has this stream-like quality. These metaphors, I don't think, are accidental. That he's suggesting that we need to let go of what, in a sense, constricts and restricts us is, in a way, a form of death. It gives us the illusion of some sort of solidity and security. But in fact, as in the passage here, it cuts us off from that fluid ground which is moving us forward into that which we do not know, which is unfamiliar and strange and surprising and astonishing and is not yet defined. There's also another passage where the Buddha compares his community and his teaching uh, to an ocean, which once again is an image of water. And he says, just as the, the castes of men, the Brahmins and the noblemen and so on, um, when they enter that water, that ocean, like rivers, they lose their distinction. And likewise, in the way that salt pervades the entirety of the ocean, so does freedom pervade his Dhamma Vinya, his teaching, his training. So again, the idea of water. We'll come back to this. This idea of uh, conditioned arising also um, has to do very much with learning to be more in the present rather than fantasizing about the past or planning and plotting 
for what the future might be. And there's a very famous passage in which uh, the Buddha uh, summarizes, or let's say he takes his understanding of conditioned arising um, one step further. This is a passage in which a wanderer called Udayin uh, meets the Buddha and tells him that he has just been speaking to Nataputta. Nataputta is what the Pali texts call uh, Mahavira, the founder of Jainism. Mahavira claimed to be omniscient. But when Udayin asked Mahavira about the past, Nataputta prevaricated, led the talk aside, and became angry and bitter. Um, this is a Buddhist take, so take it with a big pinch of salt. In any case, Siddhartha said to Udayin, let be the past, Udayin, let be the future. I shall teach you the Dhamma. When this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the cessation of this, that ceases. So this um, is not, I feel, a prescription to um, absorb oneself in some uh, eternal present, but rather to recognize that the present moment is both the outcome of what has gone before and is the germ of what will happen next. So this is also very much, I feel, um, a doctrine of self-reliance. It's about recognizing that we have the uh, capacity in this moment both to understand our own past and likewise to be able to create our own future. But how do we do this? And I think the answer is fairly straightforward. It is through the training that we're doing on this retreat, that of learning to be present, learning to pay attention. And this is technically called the practice of mindfulness. Now, you've probably, or most of you, have probably heard this term, satipatthana. But it was only relatively recently on studying the passage that we have before us, that I noticed that the link between this expression, this ground, tana, and satipatthana, same word, tana, ground. Except here, patana <coughs> is a verbal form. In Pali, there's an ambivalence, an ambiguity in patana. It could mean and it's usually taken to mean the foundations of mindfulness or the grounds of mindfulness. In other words, the body, the feelings, mental states, and dhamma or phenomena. But if we follow the Sanskrit, and this also carries over into the Tibetan, uh, patana does not refer to um, the object of mindfulness, but it is a verb that describes how we do mindfulness. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi says you could perhaps translate it as the setting up of mindfulness. But if we 
take the word tana more literally as ground, we could describe it as the grounding of mindfulness. Uh, the Tibetan translation is Dremba uh, Nyevarashakpa. Nyevarashakpa means the close placing or settling of mindfulness. So this um, ground, this groundless ground of contingently emerging and vanishing events is, um, is, is related to, or we work with it, we come to be with it through grounding our attention on these contingent processes, on these conditional events. So mindfulness is the way in which we ground ourselves in this groundless ground. And again, it's not, um, it's not so much, therefore, a practice in which we're preparing ourselves or aiming to become more mindful or more aware of something timeless and eternal and transcendent. But rather, what we pay attention to are the mundane phenomena of our experience from moment to moment. So, at the beginning of the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the grounding of mindfulness, the Buddha starts by saying, a monk goes into a forest and sits at the root of a tree or in an empty hut with his back erect. And when he breathes in a long breath, he knows that he's breathing in a long breath. When he breathes out a long breath, he knows that he's breathing out a long breath. So here we find the, the quality of knowing, which comes from this mindful attention. And it's a knowing of what is taking place right now. And I'm sure we've all heard these passages. We'll be coming back to this again, so I'm not going to dwell on this. But just to um, remind us, we also have this famous stock phrase, it's in the Satipatthana Sutta, but we find it elsewhere too, that such a monk acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, when flexing and extending his limbs, when wearing his robes and carrying his bowl, when eating, drinking and tasting, when defecating and urinating, when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. So this is a more spelt out um, description of what it means to wake up to this ground. It means to open ourselves with stillness, with depth, with presence, to the phenomena of our transient life. There's nothing too lowly not to be embraced within this kind of practice. 
This must, I think, have been quite shocking at the Buddha's time, as we'll, pro as, as we'll come to see uh, towards the end of this talk. So we're not, as it were, uh, trying to use mindfulness to probe and investigate and analyze such that we break through, perhaps one day, this veil of mere appearance and tap into the way things really are. And this is an expression, again, which is often used um, in, in our culture of meditation. The idea that one day we will see things as they really are. And again, it's a mistranslation. The word is yatabhutang, which doesn't mean the way things are. It means the way things happen. Bhutang means uh, to come about, to uh, arise, to take place. We understand how things begin to happen, which again is suggestive of being much more uh, clear about the causal processes involved. What do I do? How do I behave? And what consequences that has? It brings us immediately into a moral sphere. It's not some neutral, dispassionate, seeing things as they are. That phrase is actually quite at odds with how the Buddha speaks. He's concerned with what happens. He's not interested in what the ultimate nature of reality is. And this, of course, is how one imagines the Buddha himself before he was the Buddha, as he sat beneath that tree, awoke to this shifting ground, this groundless ground, not by some kind of philosophical analysis or reflection, although that would probably have been part of this process, but by coming to some, or some radically different perspective on his life. And this brings us to the second part of the passage we're looking at. The Buddha doesn't think of this ground simply as conditioned arising, this conditions that. But rather, he also sees this ground, and this is how the text goes, and also it is hard to see this ground. In other words, for someone who, is, who, who delights and revels in their place, who's locked into that, it's hard to see this ground, the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all bases, the fading away of craving, desirelessness, stopping, nibbana, that too is a ground. So the Buddha is presenting us here with the two facets of this ground. They're not two separate things. In the first instance, he's describing the objective pole of this experience. In the second instance, he's describing the subjective quality of that experience. We're going to look at this in much more detail uh, in the next uh, couple of days. So I'm not going to go into this business of nibbana and stopping right now. 
But just to put that briefly, something deep within this man stopped. Usually this is described as the stopping of greed, of hatred, and confusion, what are called the three fires or the three poisons. That he came to recognize that he could be fully present to the turbulent cascade of events without being pushed and pulled by his preferences, by his desires, by his hatreds, by his fears. In other words, there was a still calm at the base, at the root of this experience. An unfamiliar dropping away of familiar habits and the absence, at least momentarily, of anxiety and turmoil and this endless self-referencing. Now this is simply what Nibbana means, the, the blowing out, literally. The blowing out of greed, the blowing out of hatred, the blowing out of confusion. Now, whether this uh, remains a constant and a permanent state or whether it's merely, not merely, but whether it is a glimpse, a moment, maybe a, a series of moments, a short period of time or a longer period of time. In a way, that doesn't really matter. The point is that this ground is one in which one recognizes that one is free to be in this world, in this shifting ground, from another perspective altogether. One does not need to be the uh, victim, that which is somehow pushed and pulled by these urges and impulses and forces that habitually drive us. And the possibility is now opened up to respond to this ground, to this world, from the perspective of detachment, of lucidity, and of love. It's, it's, it's common um, uh, in, in Buddhism to use a negative not just in a merely privative sense, but also to imply the opposite of what is negated. So we often come across these terms, uh, what are called the three roots of goodness, non-greed, non-hatred, non-detachment, sorry, non-attachment, or non-confusion, sorry. But this doesn't just mean um, the absence of these things. In that case, um, this watch would be enlightened. It doesn't have any greed, doesn't have any hatred, doesn't have any confusion. Um, rather, the, 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 the privative not um, suggests the counter qualities, that non-greed is um, a conscious uh, detachment 
uh, an openness that does not get pushed and pulled by wanting and not wanting, or wanting to get something, wanting to get rid of something. And nor is non-hatred just the absence of hatred, but rather it is opening up to the possibilities of compassion and tolerance and love. And nor is non-confusion just the absence of confusion, but it is also a lucidity of mind, um, a capacity to, uh, to discriminate finely, to investigate, to penetrate into the nature of what's going on. So this brings us to the final uh, sentence in, in the prose passage here. The Buddha then says, having described what it was that he had awoken to, he says, were I to teach the Dhamma and others were not to understand me, that would be tiring and vexing for me. This is a curious passage. Um, why, when he has come to this great awakening, is he not immediately inspired to go out and act upon it? But it appears that he is not. And why not? He summarizes this in a verse that then follows the, uh, the passage in prose. Why should I now reveal, he asks himself, what I reached with difficulty. This Dhamma is not easily awoken to by those in thrall to desire and hate. Those dyed by desire, covered by a mass of darkness, will not see what goes against the stream, deep, hard to see and fine, I think the key passage here is this somewhat famous one. What goes against the stream? Now, I think we can understand this in at least two ways. Um, first of all, what he has understood goes against the stream of the normative or the, um, the dominant religious culture of his time. What he's pointing to here, what he has awoken to, is entirely at odds with the Brahmanic culture of the Upanishads, primarily. But it is also, and this is the second point, against the stream of common sense, against the stream of how we intuitively and commonsensically assume things to be. Let's first, though, um, consider in what way it is against the stream of um, what is taught in the dominant culture of the Upanishads. And rather than just leave that as a sort of general statement, um, I'm going to look at some passages from the Upanishads. 
Um, I think it's probably not possible to understand what the Buddha was saying um, without some knowledge of, 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 of these texts, of the Upanishads. Um, I have to admit that it's taken me many, many years to get round to reading them. And I suspect that might be true for many Buddhists um, who might either be dismissive of them as Hindu or something, um, or else feel that everything has been said by the Buddha and we don't really need to, to go there. And there is also, um, in the Buddhist tradition, a, a curious lack of historical interest, interest in the historical period in which the Buddha lived. You sometimes have the sense the Buddha sort of came out of nowhere, or at least out of the Tushita heaven, and then landed on earth, and then taught the Dhamma, and then died. But the Buddha did not speak in a vacuum, any more than any of us can ever speak in a vacuum. We speak in the condition of our time. We speak in a physical place, we speak in a particular language, we speak um, to other people who also hold beliefs and views and ideas that we may or may not agree with. But all human discourse is relational. To understand the Buddha or to understand Christ or Muhammad, we have to understand the, uh, uh, the kind of world in which they lived, the kind of audience to whom they would have addressed themselves. So when the Buddha says, this goes against the stream, he's saying in the first instance, this goes against what people around me think and believe most deeply in their lives. I'd like to look at, at what's called the, the Mandukya Upanishad. This is a very short Upanishad, there's only 12 verses. And um, this is a key text of the tradition that later arose some thousand or so years after the Buddha, uh, called Advaita Vedanta. In fact, Shankara, Shankaracharya, who's usually seen as the father of Advaita Vedanta, um, wrote a commentary on this, and his teacher's teacher, Gandapada, likewise, wrote a, a set of verses on this uh, key Upanishad. <coughs> So the fifth uh, verse of the Mandukya Upanishad says, When one is fast asleep, bereft of dreams and desires, that is panya, prajna, wisdom. The self in the third state of deep sleep. As the darkness of night drives away the visible world, so does the dreamless sleep push aside the world of objects, external or internal. Experiences now of prajna, of wisdom, collapse into one undifferentiated point of consciousness, restful and blissful. Now, um, this is, is quite typical of many passages through the Upanishads. That the, the process of... Um, of, uh, of insight, the process of understanding, the process of liberation, has to do with penetrating deep below the surface of 
waking consciousness, deep below the layer of dream consciousness, deep sleep consciousness, going ever deeper inward into the core of oneself until one reaches this uh, undifferentiated point of consciousness, restful and blissful, sometimes called sat-chit-anand, truth, consciousness and bliss. Now here I wonder whether this whole approach and this language we find in the Upanishads is another reason why the Buddha chooses to use the word or the metaphor of awakening, of waking up in the complex social world of the senses. This is a move that goes entirely counter to this tradition in which the deepest kind of wisdom is found beneath the surface of of ordinary, mundane, everyday consciousness at some point within the heart, deep within ourselves. We have this um, uh, striking difference here between a, a meditation that is very much inwardly directed to the passage I just read from the Satipatthana Sutta when the Buddha is saying you're mindful of when you're walking forward and walking back, when you're eating, when you're shitting, when you're pissing. In, con- in, in the context of, 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 of Upanishadic ideas, that would have seemed to have gone very much against the stream. But the Upanishad continues. This third state of deep sleep is not the final point. Now about the self in the fourth state, which is called Turiya. He is neither outward nor inward directed. He is not directed at all, and so he cognizes not, and is himself non-cognizable. He knows not, and is himself not knowable. He is unseen, unusable, ungraspable. He is without signs, without indications, unthinkable and undescribable. His only proof is his presence, peaceful, benign, pure oneness. This fourth state is verily beyond all the elements and all the letters. There's no commerce with it. It brings all distinctions and developments to an end. As such, it is utterly unavailing. It is only peace, repose and oneness. In another Upanishad, the Kata Upanishad, we have the Buddha uh, describing uh, the kind of meditation that um, is uh, taught within these texts. When the five instruments of knowledge, in other words the senses, stand still, together with the mind at rest, and when the intellect does not move, that is called the highest state. In other words, a a deep absorption of utter stillness and inwardness, which is reminiscent, of course, of the practices he did before his awakening, these absorptions into what is called the base of nothingness or the base of neither perception nor non-perception. It's very much a meditation that seeks to take us out of this world out of the phenomenal 
array of shifting conditional experiences to something that is unconditioned, something that is timeless, eternal, unborn, deathless. All of these terms, and I'm deliberately using them because we also find them in, 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 in Buddhism, were the words used to describe this transcendent experience of Brahman or God. And as is the case, and this is in some ways what makes things a little confusing, is that the Buddha does use the terms, or sometimes uses, the terms we find in the Upanishads. The deathless, the unconditioned, the unborn. But what he does is not use them in the way they're understood here, but he somehow turns them on their head. There's a passage in the uh, Sangyutta Nikaya, the connected discourses of the Buddha, called the Asankata Sangyutta, the connected discourses on the unconditioned. And there the Buddha says, and, and what is the unconditioned? I will teach you the unconditioned. The unconditioned is the destruction of greed, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of confusion. So he's not pointing here to some transcendent reality, but rather he's pointing to how we can live in this world unconditioned by greed, by hatred, by confusion. And then he goes on to say, and what is the path leading to the unconditioned? Mindful attention to the body is the path leading to the unconditioned. So he's doing quite the opposite thing. These terms probably at his time were equivalent to salvation or heaven or something like that. All religious teachers would somehow have had to show that their teaching um, uh, will, will lead to these goals. But the Buddha turns it around. Instead of turning the mind inward, deeply inside us, to something eternal, he turns the mind to the body, walking, sitting, the breath, the feelings, mental states, the phenomena of the world. It's a complete turnabout. And in that sense, too, we can see how it goes against the stream. This is from the Shvetashvatara Upanishad. And here it's, again, talking of the experience of Brahman, or, or God, the unconditioned. The sun does not shine there, nor the moon and the stars, nor these lightnings, and much less this fire. When he shines, everything shines after him. By his light, all this is lighted. This is the highest mystery of the Vedanta, delivered in a former age, and it should not be given to one whose passions have not been subdued, nor to one who is not a son or who is not a pupil. The word Upanishad um, literally means um, uh, uh, 
though instruction given to those who sit down close to one. In other words, it's a secret teaching. Now, these doctrines would not have been widely available. They certainly would have been discussed and uh, uh, practiced by people within the Brahmanic community and probably also within the sorts of communities the Buddha would have gone to meditate and practice before he became awakened. It's also worth noting that the Upanishads are not um, a consistent um, system of ideas. They're not equivalent to what nowadays we would call, uh, say, Hindu philosophy. They're, they're very beautiful texts. Uh, they're very powerful, uh, very moving. And in fact, in many ways, the, the language and the poetry is to me more, um, more powerful in some ways than the Buddhist texts, which often can seem a bit pedestrian and plodding. But they, they represent a period of time in which there is no consensus about what the nature of God is, the nature of Brahman is. There's also, in some of the Upanishads, um, even um, a questioning of the caste system, that Brahmins and Brahmins alone, the priestly caste, are the unique and only authorities in this field. There's one or two Upanishads which are delivered by a Kshatriya, by a person who's not a Brahmin, and the Brahmin priest goes to the Kshatriya. And this points to how, at the time of the Buddha, the order of things was being thrown into question. It was not entirely clear who had authority in these matters. It's that kind of environment that allowed young men like Siddhartha Gautama to wander off in search of truth and meaning. But the Vedanta nonetheless uh, prided itself on being a kind of secret oral tradition. And this, again, I feel is also something that the Buddha rejects. There's a famous passage at the end of his life um, in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta where he says that, I, he says, I am not a closed-fisted teacher. I teach the Dhamma to whoever comes and seeks instruction. I don't hold back any kind of privileged doctrine for my special disciples. That too is very much going against the stream. The making public, the refusal to distinguish between the popular doctrine and the special secret teachings. If these truths have been told to a high-minded man who feels the highest devotion for the self and for his guru, then they will shine forth. Then they will shine forth indeed. The Buddha, in a way, democratizes the spiritual path and thereby, again, goes against the stream. And let me read one more passage. <clears throat> um, this is a very famous passage. It's from the uh, Panishad, whose name I always 
can't pronounce, the Brihadaranyaka Upanishad. He, the self, the text says, can only be described as not this, not this. He is incomprehensible, for he cannot be comprehended. He is imperishable, for he cannot perish. He is unattached, for he does not attach himself. He does not feel or suffer, because he is unfettered. He who knows, he is not overcome by these two thoughts. For some reason I have done bad, or for some reason I have done good. He overcomes both, and neither what he has done, nor what he has admitted to do, affects him. Now here I feel we perhaps have maybe the clearest example of where the Buddha goes against the stream. In the, in the Upanishads, the way to Brahman is through this process called neti-neti. Not this, not this. Brahman is not what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, what we touch. It's not that, it's not that, it's not that. And yet here we have the Buddha talking very much in terms of this, this, this. He says in the text that we're studying, he says, it's very hard for those who are obscured by their attachment to place to see this ground, idam tanam, idapachayata. He uses the word this twice in three words. Idapachayata, which I've translated as this conditions that. Remember in, in these highly inflected languages of Pali and Sanskrit, um, idda means this, but it also <coughs> means that. And there are numerous uh, uh, case endings. I counted them once, 38 ways of saying this. Of this, by this, for this, with this, these, those, masculine, feminine, neuter, etc. In English we have four, this, that, these, those. End of story. But the point is uh, this, which is technically called a deictic pronoun. In other words, it's a pronoun that points to something specific. This is why Bhikkhu Bodhi, perhaps, translates this expression, ida pachayata, as specific conditionality. We have the passage of, uh, with Udayin. When this exists, that comes to be. With the ceasing of this, that ceases. It's very much this-centered. This rather difficult-to-translate expression, idda pachayata, which I've translated as this conditions that. Tanisaro translates it as this-that conditionality. Bhikkhu Bodhi says, specific conditionality is again going very much against the stream. It's turning the attention not to what is not this, not this, but rather to this, this, that, these, those. Things that are specifically uh, observable, hearable, smellable, tasteable, touchable, thinkable. The specifics of the world, the specifics of the phenomenal experience. That is where we focus our mindful 
attention. That is the ground that opens up for the Buddha. We find both in the Vedas and in the Upanishads many passages in which um, the writer tries to describe how this world came to be. Um, and it starts with the undifferentiated oneness of Brahma, which then becomes increasingly differentiated until this specific world in all of its detail is manifest. But the practice of the yogin is to turn the attention back away from the differentiated specific world and to return to this undifferentiated source of oneness or satchitanam, this consciousness, this ultimate consciousness, this unconditioned, radiant mind of God. And the Buddha is doing the very opposite. He's turning the attention to the specifics, the complexity, the differentiated world. He's very um, uh, prone not to reduce his teaching to either one thing, one absolute truth, nor does he um, like using uh, dualisms, this, uh, like, like the absolute truth, relative truth, or mind and body. In fact, what's curious about the Buddha's teaching, which we've probably all noticed, is his penchant for long lists. <laughs> when he speaks of the human condition, he doesn't start by speaking of it as the body-mind complex, as we might, which again starts with the sense of there being two things. But he speaks of the five aggregates, the five clusters, materiality, feeling, perception, impulses, consciousness. And when he takes any of those particular points, they tease out into yet more diversity and complexity. The 12 ayatana, the 12 sense fields, the 18 elements, the 37 limbs of awakening. The Buddha seems to have a love of diversity and uh, plurality and complexity, all of which are endlessly interrelating, interconnecting, and opening us up to the world's phenomenal diversity and richness, rather than seeking to reduce one's spiritual experience to some kind of oneness or some kind of privileged principle, like consciousness or something, that somehow stands apart, giving us a God's eye view of the world. The Buddha is presenting us with um, uh, a, pheno a, a, a phenomenal experience of complexity and diversity, within which everything is a feature of the contingent, conditional flux of events. The other, part, the other aspect of this passage I've just read also, which I'm going to stop here, is that somehow once one um, finds oneself in this position of a kind of unconditional awareness, then one goes beyond the imperatives of morality. So he who knows, he is not overcome by these two thoughts, 
for some reason I have done bad or for some reason I have done good. It's going beyond the uh, sense of good and bad, of good and evil. One transcends that. And one might suggest that there's a kind of moral dissociation occurring in such a transcendent state in which more or less anything thereby can hypothetically be allowed. But that particular point we'll also return to later when we look at the moral and ethical implications of the Buddha's teaching. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.